Well, there were tons of really good questions. We could spend easily a few hours going through them all, but we won't. Uh, so I'll just read a few of them. The idea of true unconditional love being at our core goes against modern self-interest views of human nature. What is the nature of this love? Why is it there? Why is it hidden? And if there is no self, who is sending, receiving the well wishes when we do the Brahma Vihara practice? Well, this was an interesting question in that it posited a dichotomy between unconditional love and self-interest. And I think one of the things that we see in our practice is that even taking the relative level of self, and it's on, the, it's on the relative level, the conventional level, that we both can speak of self and also be sending and receiving metta. When we're doing metta practice, loving-kindness practice, it's on the relative level, it's two beings. We're not saying, may the five aggregates be happy. You know, and, so one thing is to understand, in doing the metta, that's the level it's on. The Buddha had said, in, in one place he said, if we truly loved ourselves, we would never harm another. And so self-interest, even if we take it on this very conventional level, is served by... <coughs> the feeling of love. It's not in, not in contrast to it. Is our self-interest better served by feelings of loving-kindness or ill-will and hatred? You know, by generosity or by stinginess? It's like all of these wholesome qualities of mind actually are serving ourselves on that, on that conventional level. Uh, so I don't see them really as different, even though kind of in popular understanding, perhaps, and people who don't have an understanding of their own minds and experience, would take self-interest to mean selfishness, you know, and getting more for oneself. But by this time in the retreat, I'm sure you've all seen through that particular delusion. Metta also operates on another level. You know, one is the conventional level of having loving wishes for oneself, for others. But there's also a quality of love that is in the nature of mindful awareness itself. So this quality of love is not so much the concepts of love for oneself, love for others, but rather it's the quality we could say, of open-heartedness, open-mindedness to experience. Metta, in terms of Abhidhamma understanding, is an aspect of the mental factor of non-hatred. That's how it's described. So non-hatred is a common wholesome factor which means that in every wholesome mind state, whenever we're being mindful, <coughs> non-hatred is present. So metta is the active expression of non-hatred, you know, when we're actively expressing the goodwill, but the quality of metta, <coughs> even if it's not actively expressed, is present in every moment of mindfulness, because non-hatred goes along with it. And you may have noticed, hopefully at times, when you're simply in a mindful, some kind of sustained mindful state, just the quality of the heart at that time relative to what's arising. If you had the experience of it just being of a friendly nature, you know, the awareness itself is friendly towards what's arising. And so again, this is another way of understanding how 
metta and non-hatred works in our practice. Could you please give an example uh, of when does craving start to become clinging? Okay, and so I'm just asking really for the distinction between craving and clinging. These are two somewhat related questions. <clears throat> With so much emphasis on not indulging in tea drinking, <clears throat> I see myself and others sometimes drink as we walk. In the dining hall, for example. Walk back and forth, take a sip. Back and forth, another sip. <clears throat> Maybe the only multitasking we can do here. <laughs> Is this skillful practice? Or better to just sit and drink mindfully and then walk mindfully. <laughs> uh, I can't quite read this one. So the difference between craving and clinging, there's, there's a very <clears throat> clear-cut distinction we're always craving what we don't have. Right? If we had it, we wouldn't be craving it. And so craving is like the reaching for something, the wanting something, but have not yet taken hold of it. So that's the, that's the quality of craving or wanting in the mind. Clinging is never to something we don't have. We can't cling to what we don't have. Clinging happens when we have the object or the experience or the person. Right? So when we actually have the experience, then clinging is that force of holding on, of attachment. Uh, kind of say the Velcro mind, you know, the mind that's sticking to the object, that's not letting go. And so it's just to watch that process. Craving is the precursor to clinging. Craving is the wanting the reaching for, the desiring, the thirsting for. And when we get it and the mind is, becomes attached to it, that's the clinging. So as you are in the dining room <coughs> or wherever and walking back and forth, you might notice what's going on in the mind as you reach the end. The hand by itself does not reach out for the teacup. There's an intention in the mind to reach driven by what? Driven by craving. As you grab, the, as you grab hold of the teacup, that's clinging. Right? And you can see that process at work really clearly. My suggestion would be that it would probably be more helpful not to interrupt the continuity of mindfulness with these moments, um, many mind moments, of craving and clinging at the end of each path. Multitasking or not, <laughs> it would be better, I think, to keep the continuity, the momentum of the mindfulness going. And to pay attention, you know, in the course either of that walking or throughout the day, of really learning for yourself in your own experience, uh, really what this quality in the mind, what this quality of craving feels like, the wanting something we don't have. Because this is a very powerful force. I mean, the Buddha talked of craving you know, as the primal force that keeps samsara going. So this is not an insignificant <coughs> Uh, energy within us, even though it may take some superficial forms like a cup of tea, but the power, the force of craving is very deeply rooted in our minds. And when we're on retreat and undistracted, <coughs> it's possible to really get a feel for it. We begin to feel and see what it's like. And with mindfulness, and here we get a, a very good view of the power of mindfulness. 
when we are able to actually be aware of the craving in the mind, you know, we see it and we feel it and we experience that wanting for what we don't have. If we're mindful of it, then there's a choice. Do I just go with it? Or can I let the craving arise and pass? We're no longer dominated by this powerful force in the mind. We have more choice. We have more wise discernment, a possibility for wise discernment. And so we can explore this even on the very small little things throughout the day. It doesn't have to be you know, just about a huge obsessive craving. It can be craving for little things. We can understand this mind state. <coughs> can you please speak to what your concept of creativity is and a bit about what your own mindful creative process looks like? while writing your book, etc. Because books are words, this is still different than, say, a musician or dancer. I, this is another question. I am a musician, and I'm certain there are other performing and visual artists in the room, and at least one pumpkin-carving genius somewhere nearby. Can you comment on craving, sila, and sensual restraint for those of us who, when not on retreat, actively seek to create sensual delight? That's a really interesting question. I mean, just what creativity is, what the role of it is, what the effect is in our own minds and the minds of other people, what our motive is. So first, kind of the easy part and just uh, sharing with you my own process and what I appreciate so much about the interface of meditation and creativity. One of the things I've noticed in writing is that when I write uh, within a space, if I'm doing a writing retreat, That's my intention. So I'm actually on retreat and secluded. And because my intention for that retreat, unlike this one, the intention is to be writing, what I would do is sit and then write, and sit and write. And what was so fascinating is to see that the most creative aspect of the mind really comes out of silence. And the deeper the silence the more creative the mind became. You know, because so often our minds are operating just on that thought conceptual level, discursive level, and a lot of it is um, just rehashing old ideas. You know, as my mind would get quiet from the retreat space and from the sitting space, then it drops into a much more intuitive realm, you know, where the ideas are coming not from some big discursive process, but coming out of the silence. And I've always found that the connection to whatever I was writing about was so much deeper when it was coming from the silence. So I think that meditation really opens up that silent, intuitive, creative space. So then the other question in terms of, is it just serving, you know, or maybe different kinds of artists serving to delight the senses of either oneself or other people? So I want to talk about this from a few different sides. One is, it would be interesting just to look at one's motivation. You know, because the motivation in creating art, it can come from many different places. Uh, it could come from a wish to delight the senses of others. It could come from a motivation to uplift the minds of others. It could come from the motivation to illuminate the minds of others. <clears throat> Especially in some traditions, I'm thinking particularly, for example, of Zen, many of the great Zen masters 
you know, were these fantastic artists. And a lot of the great scroll paintings, you know, in Japan were done by, by Zen masters. Uh, many of the great haiku poets were Zen masters. So there, there's the creative expression of liberation. It's the creative expression of awakening. So it's possible to create from <clears throat> a wide range of motivations. And it's just useful to take a look. You know, what's, what's the urge? What's the motivation behind what we're doing? But I think there's even a place for artistic expression when it's done either with the motivation or simply with the understanding that this is going to be for the sense delight you know, of oneself or others. So this gets to an interesting Dharma point. One of us, I can't remember who now, was speaking of the hallucinations of perception, right? taking what's impermanent to be permanent, unsatisfying to be satisfying, etc. Well, there are, there are three levels, <coughs> three levels of hallucination, or three levels of distortion of mind. One level is hallucination or distortion of perception. So the, the example given, and I can't remember now whether it was mentioned specifically, you know, if you're walking in the woods and <coughs> you see a snake, but it turns out to be a stick, right? And so that's a hallucination of percep perception. We're perceiving something incorrectly. Hallucinations of perception are relatively easy uh, to fix. You know, if we just look closer and we come closer to it, we say, oh yeah, that's not a stick, that's not a snake, that's a stick. So it's easy to uh, <clears throat> rectify that distortion by a more careful looking. The second level of hallucination or distortion is called hallucination or distortion of mind. And that has to do with all the thoughts or feelings we might have from the distortion of perception. You know, so we see the stick, but we take it to be a snake, and then fear arise in the mind, and all kinds of mental images. So all of that is hallucination of mind, right? based on the fact that we're not perceiving correctly. Hallucination of mind is also reasonably easy to rectify in the same way. We just look more closely. Oh, this was just a stick, and all of those distortions of mind fall away. It's the third level of hallucination, the third distortion, which is very hard to uproot. It's very hard to see through. And this is called <coughs> hallucination or distortion of view. When people are very attached to a view, very often it's precisely that attachment to view which will just not entertain any evidence to the contrary because the mind is so fixated on holding the view. <clears throat> so one recent example of this, but there are many, is what has been called the Bertha movement. You know, people who believe, who have the view that Obama was not born in this country. And having that view is fine if it's then we, you know, one investigates and finds out. But at least according to all the evidence reported, with the investigation of the evidence, it's quite clear that he was born in Hawaii. And yet people who hold that view don't believe it. 
you know, and it's very hard to disentangle them from it, regardless of what the evidence is showing. So this attachment to view is extremely powerful in our lives. The view that is most fundamentally conditioning our lives and which is highlighted in the Buddhist teachings of awakening is the view of self. In Pali it's called Sakaya Ditti. Sometimes it's called personality view, but it's not really about personality. It's about the view that there is an enduring self, an enduring I, behind this process to whom it's happening. And you've seen through these weeks, these many weeks of practice, that even though at times we may get glimpses you know, of the selfless nature, still the view of self can be very strongly entrenched and it comes up again and again. The great loophole for artistic creative endeavor came from a surprising source as I was just reading some Buddhist literature. I was reading uh, some text by Lady Sayadaw, this great Burmese monk, who's great scholar, great meditative master, very classical. And he was talking about these three levels of distortion and how important it was to uproot the wrong view of self. And Nikki is going to talk more about anatta tomorrow evening. But when we do, he made a very interesting comment. He said, once we have established right view within ourselves, okay, so once we've uprooted, at least to some significant extent, this wrong view of self, you know, which has dominated the way we experience our lives. Once we have established right view within ourselves, we will no longer commit any weighty, unwholesome actions that lead to misfortune. Right? Because it's the sense of self and the delusion that that creates that conditions so many unwholesome actions that we do. So we will no longer commit any weighty unwholesome actions that lead to misfortune. And the two remaining distortions, okay, so these are the lighter ones, distortions of perception, distortions of mind, they will still remain. But this is the that's the line I loved. The remaining two distortions of perception and mind merely enable such beings who have uprooted wrong view to enjoy those worldly pleasures that they have lawfully earned. <laughs> so it's not that somehow in the course of practice as we're walking on this path, and especially as lay people in the world. You know, it's not that we necessarily have to or even being asked to you know, give up all the ordinary worldly sense pleasures. Although if one is living as a monastic, that's a whole different, it's a whole different paradigm. But as lay people, we are engaged in the world of sense pleasures. And there's the acknowledgement, and the Buddha talked, talked a lot about this, you know, when, when he was talking to lay people, who, many of whom had attained high states of awakening, 
many of whom had attained the uprooting of wrong view. And so then one can enjoy <laughs> the lawfully earned sense pleasures, which means that we're not engaging in, in them with some violation of sila or the precepts, but it's just part of the lawful nature of our lives unfolding. And so when I read this question and I thought of an artist you know, creating beauty in one way or another and for people to enjoy that beauty, if that can be done with the wisdom of selflessness, <coughs> then that enjoyment of the beauty is really quite harmless because we're not using it <coughs> in the service of self, in the service of wrong view. Does this seem clear? A relief? <laughs> It's actually possible to enjoy life in a dharmic way. Right? The key to it, though, is really seeing through wrong view. That's the key element. And just to emphasize that point, this is from uh, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche. And it just emphasizes the point of how the seeing through or uprooting wrong view is really the central, the central point of our practice, the central point of what we're doing here. Again from uh, Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. The idea of an enduring self has kept you wandering helplessly in realms of samsara for countless past lifetimes. It is the very thing that now prevents you from liberating yourself and others from conditioned existence. If you could simply let go of that one thought of I, you would find it easy to be free and to free others too. If you overcome the belief in a truly existing self today, you will be enlightened tomorrow. But if you never overcome it, <coughs> you will never gain enlightenment. Use any practice you do to dissolve this idea of I and the self-oriented motivations that accompany it. And even if you do not succeed in the beginning, keep trying. And so it's just a very clear, direct pointing to what the essence of our practice is. And the freedom then, once we see through this concept of I and see through this attachment to this view that the enjoyment of life becomes much more profound. <clears throat> I am in so much pain and grief having seen that after so many years of practice I am a spiritual materialist. I want enlightenment so badly how can I possibly not want what is held out as a luminous, shining mind? Please help me. I am seriously considering leaving this path. I feel like it cannot, I cannot do it. My eye just won't stop. <coughs> <coughs> how do you let go of the ego? Or how will it be wholesome to do so? when most of my suffering comes from the deeply rooted belief that I am not worth, that I'm not worth anything. So again, there's, so, there's such interesting questions about this whole notion of what we hold on to. In terms of the spiritual materialist question, <laughs> and just wanting enlightenment <clears throat> so deeply and intensively, and it feels like it's just a lot of I associated with it. One of the discourses <clears throat> in the Middle Lent sayings is called, the name of it, is called One Fortunate Attachment. And the Buddha goes on, it's basically an attachment to walking the path. And he calls it, if in the whole realm of attachments, he says, 
Well, this is one fortunate attachment. And so, you know, if there's this strong, overwhelming desire for awakening, for enlightenment, for freeing the mind, I wouldn't necessarily see that as a bad thing. You know, it may be mixed in with some I thoughts for a while. But if it is actually keeping us on the path, the practice itself will dissolve the I in that, in that seeking of awakening. There are several mental factors, there are several qualities in the mind that can often get confused. So one is the desire of craving, you know, which is second noble truth, the cause of suffering. But there's another mental factor, which I think we've talked about at different times, it's called chanda. And that's the quality <coughs> It's translated as desire to do. So we use the same word in English, desire, but it's not the desire of craving. You could say it's the desire, it's the more neutral desire of motivation to do something. It's a very energizing uh, aspect of the mind. One translation of it, it's called zeal zeal for something. Chanda is a neutral factor, which means sometimes it's associated with wholesome motivations, sometimes with unwholesome motivations. So it's possible to turn this strong desire for enlightenment, for awakening, in which it feels like there's a strong I in there. Instead of interpreting that oh, this is hopeless, I'm a spiritual materialist, and just build a whole story around that, really see if part of that urge really is zeal. It's zeal for awakening, realizing the importance of it, realizing the value of it. And especially if one brings in the motivation of bodhicitta, you know, that can I practice, can I awaken for the benefit of all? And that enlarges the scope of our practice and enlarges our motivation. So I wouldn't write off this one fortunate attachment. You know, even if it feels like there's a lot of self in it, that self can be transformed in a very, <coughs> in a very skillful way that will lead you along the path. The question of how do we let go of the ego, the self, especially if it's evolving or the deep pattern is I'm not worth anything. You know, that strong feeling of unworthiness. It's There's a very interesting complexity here, you know, because one could think that by letting go of the ego, that's just another expression of denying self-worth. But it's not that at all. So I just want to frame this in a slightly larger way. The feeling or the thought, I am not worth anything, that's a good example of distortion of view. It's a, or it can be, this deeply held belief about oneself that I am unworthy, I am not of value. And until we cut through that 
distortion of view, just like the view of self in the first place, it can really dominate you know, our lives, dominate our experience. And so it's very uh, important and freeing <coughs> to take a very mindful look at exactly what that experience is in the moment, the experience of I am of no worth. Because when it's looked at very precisely, not through the veil of the belief, but through mindfulness of what's actually arising in that moment, we can see that it's a particular thought in the mind and maybe associated emotions with it. The thought and the emotion themselves are empty of self. That thought, I am unworthy, doesn't belong to anyone. It's simply a conditioned pattern, perhaps a very deeply conditioned pattern, you know, by life circumstances. So that thought comes up again and again. If we believe the thought, then we're reinforcing that distortion of view. If we can see it in that very moment as being just a thought, unworthy thought, and then whatever, whatever feelings may be there as well. And we see the arising and passing of the thought, see that it's not rooted anyplace. It doesn't belong to anyone. Then we are cutting through that distortion of view. This, this is really important because we have many distortions of view about ourselves. Kind of... A, the fundamental distortion is that there is a self, and then another whole layer of distortions of view of how this self is. And as I mentioned, it's that level of distortion that is very hard. The distortion of perception is easy. The distortion of mind is easy. Distortion of view takes a lot of care because we believe it. You know, and if our belief in that view is strong, all the evidence to the contrary, it doesn't, doesn't sway us. People can tell you over and over again, you are the most kind, loving person in the world. No way. You know, you know we're all familiar with this. So one little maxim to drop into your minds. Certainty is not an indication of truth. Just because you are certain of something, whatever it may be, and in this case, certain I am of no value, but it could be anything. It's the fact that we are certain about something has no bearing at all on whether or not it's true. <laughs> but it's extremely interesting to see how we conflate the two. You know, we think if we're certain, well, then it must be true. Well, I hope by now you've seen enough of your mind and what your minds do to know that that is not the case. Not everything that arises in our minds is true. In fact, it would be interesting to kind of get the percentages. <laughs> <laughs> so really do work. If, if, you know, in your experience, you find yourself really caught in a view of yourself, you know, in some negative way of unworthiness or unlovability or whatever it may be. You want to see it on two levels. The deepest level is 
to see that there's no one to whom it refers. There's no self there in the first place. And the second is to see that it is just a thought, albeit a conditioned one that keeps it arising often, but it is just a thought in the moment. And if we see it as such, we see the emptiness, the insubstantiality of the thought, we free ourselves from the attachment to that view. This is a tremendously freeing aspect of our understanding. We need not be lost or caught in this prison of distortion in our own minds. How does one let go of traumatic experience, not forgetting the cause of the trauma, so it is not repeated, and moving on with scars as beauty marks? How do you let go and yet remember? So that's really an important question. One thing to consider is that, first, of course, there are many levels of trauma, some very violent and some perhaps more subtle, but still which have influenced us in many ways. And some traumatic events are things we've done that have been unskillful, and others events that have been done to us that have been often hugely harmful. In this regard, the practice of meditation, the practice of mindfulness, can have a tremendously healing aspect. It is possible to actually heal from these, from these traumas, often ones that are extremely deep. And it's a very delicate process. What happens, as many of you know, in meditation, on whatever level, you know, we may have experienced these things, either by doing or by (coughs) receiving it, at various levels of intensity, we come to a retreat. We're sitting in the silence of a retreat and a lot of these memories and thoughts and feelings and images start to emerge. We start reliving, we remembering. Remembering not only in our thoughts and emotions, but in our body often. We start reliving, these are coming up you know, into our conscious mind. The process of healing is learning how to be open to, be mindful of, how to hold with care, with compassion, with kindness, the intensity of these feelings. Because through a bringing mindfulness to them, kind of reliving the experience, sometimes they're horrendous experiences, reliving them with consciousness, with mindfulness, with, in the end, some acceptance, allows them to come up and out. We are are actually releasing these. I'll just tell you a few few stories. There was one friend of ours, when we first started teaching in the 70s, Um, a friend who had been in Vietnam. He was a medic in the Vietnam War and had just been you know, really through a hell around. It was just really horrendous what he experienced. And he came back to the States and just, he, he said every night was just, his mind was just filled with nightmares, you know, and he was just reliving all of this so intensely. And it, was, it was very overwhelming. Then he came to a retreat. We were teaching up in the Redwoods in Northern California. And this was just a two-week retreat. Uh, 
And as he started sitting, all of this stuff started coming up, you know, all the images from the war and the violence and just everything you know, that he experienced. And it was tremendously difficult for him to be with it. But as best he could, he was just sitting with it. He was, just, he was letting it come up and watching it and letting it come up and being with it. So he was remembering, you know, re-remembering all of it in his mind, in his body. And this was going on every day, you know, most of the day for the two weeks. But it was amazing. At the end of that time, uh, we saw him again when we were back in Berkeley. Uh, he said that all of the nightmares had vanished. You know, he, had he had cleared out kind of so much of that traumatic impression by allowing it to come up, to feel it, to be with it consciously, mindfully. It doesn't always happen so quickly. And for many people, there's a process of titrating how much comes up and how fast, because for many kinds of trauma, it can be overwhelming. As we start reliving you know, some of these experiences, very easily the mind can be overwhelmed by it and lose the balance. And that's when it's absolutely essential just to back off, to slow down, not to go diving into it because the mind is being overwhelmed at that time. So it's learning, and this is one of the arts that we need to learn in meditation of how to modulate what it is that's arising in the mind, especially material that's been traumatic. You know, so we can see it, maybe it's just a little bit at first, and then we back off in whatever way we learn to back off. And then when the mind feels balanced again, we let a little more come up. And over time, the mind develops the strength to hold it all. And when we can hold it all with that compassionate attitude, there is a tremendous healing that takes place. So it's a very profound process. But it takes a great deal of care. It takes a great deal of sensitivity to the process. There's, <laughs> there are many great questions. <laughs> okay. just, can you please describe stream entry? What is it? What is it not? And insights, experiences that might masquerade as it, because they seem big, but are in true stream entry. Or maybe they are. <laughs> Do people find life noticeably better after destro destroying Sakayaditi, after uprooting the view of self? It seems like after Sotapanna, stream entry, yogis gain, the, <laughs> yogis gain the fetter of not being able to speak plainly about it to large groups. <laughs> you, having seen at least a few people go through it and live to tell, are in a unique position to tell us. <laughs> Do people find that there is a perceivable leap in their ability to skillfully relate to their lives? Or is there no break from slow Dharma transformation? Okay. <laughs> so as you know, stream entry refers to that first stage of awakening. In, in this tradition, enlightenment is said to go in stages, stream entry, and then the next stage is once returner, meaning one is reborn only once more as a human being before full enlightenment, non-returner, which means beings are not reborn, are reborn only in a higher realm and get enlightened from there, and then arhanship, which is full awakening. And just as a as an aside, it said that the reason enlightenment goes in stages 
is because we're not able to open all at once to the truth of dukkha, to the magnitude of dukkha, and, and the real depth of meaning of it. And so it, ha- it has to be titrated, right? and we, we learn to open to it. So for those of you who are experiencing a lot of dukkha during the retreat, that means you're getting even closer to enlightenment you know, because you're opening to the magnitude of this great truth. So there are different ways of understanding or different ways of talking about the experience of stream entry and how it manifests. And the Buddha was asked this many times. Very often, uh, Ananda, you know, the Buddha's attendant and cousin, and he, he, was, he was the most lovable of the monks. Uh, very often after someone died, Ananda would go to the Buddha and just you know, query him. Oh, what had he attained? What stage of enlightenment had he attained? Was he this? Was you know? Was he once returned? Was he a stream enterer? So this is, this is the Buddha's reply to him. It is not surprising, Ananda, that a human being should die. But if each time someone has died, you would approach and question me about the matter, <laughs> that would be troublesome for the Tathagata. <laughs> Therefore, Ananda, I will teach you a Dhamma exposition called the Mirror of the Dhamma, through which a noble disciple, if one wishes, could declare, I am a stream-enter, fixed in destiny, with enlightenment as my destination. Okay, so the Buddha is giving us a mirror to look at our experience. He said, and what is this Mirror of the Dhamma? A noble disciple who possesses four things is a stream-enterer. Confirmed confidence in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, in the Sangha, who possesses virtues dear to the noble ones, unbroken, untorn, unblemished, freeing, praised by the wise, ungrasped, leading to concentration. And so the Buddha is highlighting the fact of a confirmed faith and a certain perfection of sila. This is another description the Buddha gave. A noble disciple who possesses four things is a stream-enter, confirmed confidence in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, in the Sangha. Such a person dwells at home with a mind devoid of the stain of stinginess, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, one devoted to charity, delighting in giving and sharing. A noble disciple who possesses these four things is a stream-enterer. I think we so often get caught up in, you know, just a view of kind of some big explosion. (laughs) And here the Buddha is just talking about a transformation of character, you know, and highlighting what those transformations are that actually one could call oneself a stream enter. So this is one framework that I think is really uh, important to open up because these are all things we can relate to very easily. Another framework for understanding the stages of awakening is that the framework of understanding that at different of the stages, different of the defilements are progressively uprooted. So at stream entry, the defilements that are uprooted from the mind are sakaya ditti, that wrong view of self. We have seen through it the belief in rites and rituals, you know, the sense that oh, if we do this particular ritual or ceremony, we'll be awakened because we've seen the path. 
So we uproot the defilement of wrong view, belief in rites and rituals, and we've uprooted doubt because we have seen the path you know, leading to the uprooting of Sakaya Ditti. So this is another check, you know, as we look at our own experience in addition to that transformation of character, you know, have we seen through that view of self? I think not too many of us are attached to rites and rituals. That was a much more prevalent pattern in ancient India. But also, you know, the quality of doubt. Do we have doubt about the path? Or are we, you know, by having traversed it to a certain extent, are we, are we free of that doubt? I think what's really important to understand, and especially in the context of spiritual communities, is that people may have deep and genuine realization, and may even have attained to stream entry or higher, but still there is desire in the mind. There is aversion in the mind. There is conceit in the mind. There is restlessness. And restlessness is not uprooted until one is an arhant. So that should give you some comfort. <laughs> yeah, these are deeply conditioned patterns. The transformation that happens when we see through Sakaya Ditti, when we see through that view of self, uproot that view of self, the transformation is not that all these other defilements magically disappear, because they don't, and that's why there's still much more work to do, but they're seen in a different way. That is, all the other defilements, even conceit, which is not a Vrutadilnanarhan, that sense of I am, you know, the comparing mind, or the thinking of how I was in the past, how I'll be in the future, all of this is conceit, mana, all of that is seen as selfless. That's the, that's the liberating aspect of seeing through the distortion of view of self. The other defilements are still there and we have to work on them, but we're no longer taking them to be who we are. And so there's a much greater ease and lightness in our lives as we work with them. Maybe one last question. It's kind of fun. It's like you know, at Christmas, looking at all the packages under the tree. It's like, which one? What would you say are the five top pitfalls of practice for someone who is on the path for about 10 years? So, uh, really the pitfalls uh, are the same ones as on day one, you know, and they're, they're best expressed as the five hindrances. These are the pitfalls of practice. And it's just very interesting for people who have been practicing for many years to see the different ways the hindrances manifest over time. 
uh, and we get more and more uh, skilled in recognizing the deceptive wiles of Mara. You know, if we think of Mara as the embodiment of delusion, and the hindrances are just their Mara coming, the rising in the mind, seducing us in one way or another. And so I'll just give one example of this. You know, often we talk of the hindrance of sloth and torpor. We usually think of that as sleepiness or dullness of mind. There are two, two things I want to say about it, which just uh, illustrate how, as our practice goes on, we see more subtle dimensions of sloth and torpor. Um, first is to recognize that it often comes masquerading as compassion. Oh, I'm feeling tired. Let me take a little nap. Let me be good to myself. Let me have that cup of tea. <laughs> Whatever, you know, we each have our own little seductive voice in the mind. And we think it's compassion for ourselves, but it's actually sloth and torpor. And that points to the deeper meaning of sloth and torpor. It, the sleepiness or dullness, that's kind of the easy, the easy part of it. You know, we can recognize it pretty clearly. The deeper meaning of it is the tendency of the mind to retreat from difficulties. So it's that retreating aspect. So whenever there's a difficulty that arises in the mind, in the body, and the mind pulls back from it, that's the move of sloth and torpor. It's just the opposite of virya, which is energy, which is courage, which when difficulties arise, we go to meet them. And so especially for people who have been practicing for many years, this is a very interesting one to watch. You know, when do we start pulling back from difficulties? Or when do we actually search the difficulties out? Nusaira Upandita was... I don't know if he ever had a moment of sloth and torpor. (laughs) He had the most viri of, I think, anybody I've met. So in working with him, I mean, I had lots of moments of sloth and torpor in terms of, yeah, it's just, you know, go go for what's easy. Uh, So in working with him, one of my little mantras for a certain period of time became, choose the difficult. And it was so contrary to my nature, you know, that it was powerful. It's like when I was faced with a certain choice in my practice or in my life, and one was easier, one was more difficult, choose the difficult. For me, that was a very good arousal of energy. For others of you who who are used to choosing the difficult, it might be choose the easy once in a while might be the better balance. But I'm just as a way of beginning to explore over time, you know, how we can keep our practice really alive. Okay. we're all in that point of the retreat, equivalent to, with reference to the retreat, the same time frame as maybe having been practicing for 20 years, relative to the rest of our lives. There's just a certain period of time that we're gonna have this amazing container in which to practice. Uh, delight in it, you know, because even if it's difficult, it's juicy. And when you leave here, you will be yearning for the silence. <laughs> it's so, it's so precious, you know, in, in our lives. So.
Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.